Hey guys, before I get started on the message, I just wanted to uh, put in a plug for the men's advance. Uh, in putting this together, what we've tried to do is come up with topics that are relevant. And uh, I'm going to talk about proclaiming truth in a post-truth culture. Now, that may not really ring your bell, but I think we are naive if we believe that the abolition of truth in most of our institutions, think of government, think of the military, think of education, if that intentional effort to do away with truth persists, we cannot possibly hope that it won't affect your friends and may even affect how you look at things when things like peer pressure question the existence of truth. And so I encourage you, young and old, this is not an age thing. We're all subject to these pressures to, to be there, okay? Sign up over here afterwards, uh, and we, we encourage guys to take hold of this because you're the ones who have to pass this on to your children in the home or even if they're out of the home, and they start to question these things. Back to the message, uh, in general, uh, this message is going to kind of be like the last few messages, a little different, uh, because teaching about the Reformation necessarily involves his history uh, than most of our messages do. Uh, and we're doing this because of the importance of understanding our roots and how they are firmly planted in the Word of God rather than the traditions of men. And so, uh, I'm going to start here with a, a longer passage, kind of summarized up there on the screen, and hopefully this is on your, your, your handout, uh, out of Ephesians 2, which kind of says it all. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus." For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Father, uh, this is a heavy charge, but Lord God, thankfully, you do the work. Lord, help us to understand 
what we're studying today and how we got to where we are. Father, help us to understand the truth in all aspects of life, particularly with this one today. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, we've seen throughout this series on the Reformation that the problems that arose within the recognized church leading up to the objections of the Reformers. And we're not going to try to rehash all those in this message. And it's interesting to note that is this, this dispute in the 1500s is not unlike or totally dissimilar from the dispute that arose about a century later within the Protestant church. When the, the Church of England had certain practices and requirements to which some were completely loyal, while some within the church were reformers in a sense, the Puritans, and there were some who left the church, the pilgrims who ended up settling at the, the colony of Plymouth. Uh, it seems that whenever the church is tied too closely to the civil government, problems arise. And this history tells us why the framers of the U.S. Constitution provided that our government should neither establish a religion nor prohibit its free exercise. Now, one thing that we've got to remember when we talk about the Reformation is that the Reformers were all born, baptized, confirmed, and educated in the Roman Catholic Church. Most of them served as priests who had made a solemn vow of obedience to the Pope. And that, I'm sure, weighed heavily on their conscience. Uh, just last night, Chris and I were reading about how in marriage, many of us bring in unseen rules and roles that we were ingrained in us through our parents and our own families. And whenever people attempt to leave their roots and upbringing, it's extremely difficult to fully rise above the influence of those circumstances in the formation and expression of those opinions about matters of faith. And this is true of the Reformers, all of whom, usually in small ways, yielded more or less to some error. They didn't sever all ties with the corrupting influence of the system in which they had been educated. On the other hand, in avoiding one extreme, they were sometimes in danger of falling into an opposite extreme. Now, from our vantage point, all we can do today is try to get a general picture and understand that each of these people were trying to understand and apply God's world, word in a very different culture and political environment. I want to make a personal note at this point, or comment, which of course means I could be completely off the mark, about the interpretation of Scripture and the use of well-sounding words and phrases that are not well-defined. If you were in Sunday school this morning, you know exactly what I'm going to say here. Theologians tend to use words that have meaning to them and others in their own circle but perhaps are not well understood by people outside that circle and people who do not devote a, a great deal of time in studying fine points. When other theologians disagree, they will sometimes use arguments that may not use the same words in the same way. This is the problem with theological debate because theologians dispute uh, scriptural concepts 
spiritual concepts that are abstract, you can see how they can misunderstand another point of view by having or imputing a different understanding of words and concepts. And all this usually occurs in the context of personal conviction, something Christians are supposed to have. Those strongly held convictions may cause one to overreact to another position. And frankly, if you think about it, this is true of all of us. I'm not denying that we should have convictions. Let me also say I'm certainly not saying that I understand all these concepts to the extent that theologians past and present do. However, today, you guys are stuck with a lawyer, not a theologian. Okay? Therefore, my lens may be defective. I do my best to interpret and rely on others that are more trained than me. I can, I can only apply, however, what I understand. And honestly, just like Larry said last week, this message has been particularly difficult for me to decipher. There's so much background, different interpretations, and use of words in different connotations that about all I can do is come up with an overview and in the process offer some thoughts, hopefully that don't mislead or do violence to the truth. Now, I think we can all agree that lawyers will draw fine lines to distinguish one position from another. Okay? You guys probably have your own uh, billboard or, or cartoon. Um, but you know, in some respects, I think that lawyers really have nothing on theologians. Uh, now, not, a, not that theologians are trying to be deceptive, uh, but just that they can debate things that really we have no way of knowing using words and phrases that may not be well understood. You know, in, in terms of being a lawyer, I think one little thing that I've learned is that understanding facts and arguments is essential to reaching a conclusion. When we apply logic and common sense to the plain meaning of words of others, we ought to be able to reach a consensus on what those words mean. Lawyers must convince judge or jury of truth using words and arguments that can be understood. That requires us not only to present what is relevant, the things that really matter to that particular case, but to present the case in such a way that it can be understood. So, what are we trying to communicate and understand? In matters interpreting Scripture, we seek to present the things that are relevant to life and that make both reality and the Word of God coherent so that we may better understand how God works in our lives. And I'm going to call these things the big rocks, okay? I think you guys have heard the thing about big rocks. We try to deal with them and understand them first. That means I'm not going to try to untangle all the theological positions of the church and the various reformers, except to point out scripture upon which different sides may hang their hats. Some quotes and maybe some mere opinions about where the reform reformers may have gone too far, hopefully towards a better understanding of those big rocks. Again, please understand, I do not claim any superior knowledge, but I do have some questions based upon my basic understanding of these things. And I have conveniently arranged 
to dodge your questions as Mike will have the pleasure of answering them next week in Sunday school. All right. At the heart of the Reformation was the big rock question of the means of salvation. Luther and other reformers believed that salvation was caused totally by God's grace as opposed to the system that developed over the centuries in what was recognized as the church. Penance is doing something outwardly. Repentance, on the other hand, is changing inwardly. The reformers believe that people are not saved by works, but by God's grace in Christ. No man deserves salvation, and if he is saved, it's because of God's unconditional grace. Now, on your handout, you should see some definitions of grace. Uh, Christians use the term a lot, but it is important that we understand what we're talking about. Uh, Most typically, it's the unmerited favor of God. And this way, grace speaks of God's attitude towards his creation and towards his people. Uh, It's also defined as the love and mercy given to us by God because God desires us to have it, not because of anything we have done to earn it. Uh, Called the condescension or benevolence shown by God towards the human race. Another one is it's unmerited mercy or favor that God gave to humanity by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross, thus securing man's eternal salvation from sin. The reason that this was an issue is because of what the church had become. It had centralized its structure in Rome in a hierarchical fashion that's neither commanded by Scripture nor exemplified in the early church. The church had started out vibrant and alive in the midst of persecution and gradually gained acceptance and finally a power within government that corrupted it internally. Luther was educated by and was part of this hierarchy. Thankfully, God allowed him to recognize that the practice of the church did not match Scripture in several ways. And there are several, but we're only going to deal today with one. That is salvation by works. By the 14th century, the church taught that salvation was not caused by God's grace through the supernatural new birth, but by agreement with the Catholic Church teaching and practice. Faith was not trust in Christ for salvation, but submission to the church. Salvation was not by grace through faith in Christ alone, but by faith in the church and good works prescribed by the church. Good works consisted of mere external obedience to the church and did not necessarily flow from a life of faith in Christ. The Roman church stressed external actions, legal observance, and penitential works. Man actually gained heaven by his works. Now, to be fair, uh, today's Catholics recognize that God's grace at least plays a role. The Catechism of the Catholic Church states that, quote, grace is favor, the free and undeserved help that God gives us to respond to his call to become children of God, adoptive sons, partakers of the divine nature and eternal life. However, what we have found, and we've talked about this in the Sunday School and other, other places, the concept of works, infused righteousness, and even purgatory linger in today's Roman church. Now, Steve, Bill, and Larry have taught about penance and confession, and then they talked about this selling of indulgences. Uh, the effectiveness, according to the church, of these indulgences was predicated upon the doctrine of the treasury 
of grace proclaimed by Pope Clement VI. Uh, the theory was that merit earned by acts of piety could augment a believer's store of sanctifying grace. Gifts to the church were acts of piety. The church, moreover, had a treasury full of grace above and beyond what was needed to get its faithful into heaven. The church was willing to part with some of its surplus of grace in exchange for earthly gold. Uh, not all that different from the way that many non-Catholic faith healers and televangelists operate today. The Vatican authorized Johann Tetzel to sell indulgences, and that was pretty much the final straw for Luther. The Protestant Reformation was a reaction to these concepts of grace and merit as they were understood and taught in the late medieval Catholic Church. To Luther, this practice seemed to involve the purchase of salvation. He taught that men were helpless without a plea before God's justice and their acts of piety were utterly inadequate before his infinite holiness. If God is only just and not merciful, everyone would go to hell because everyone, even the best of us, deserves to go to hell. And our inability to achieve salvation by our own efforts suggests that even our best intention is somehow tainted by our sinful nature. Now, this uh, doctrine was later labeled as total depravity by Calvinism and its relatives. It is by grace alone, sola gratia, through faith alone, sola fide, that men are saved. As opposed to the treasury of grace through uh, which believers can make withdrawals, Luther taught salvation through a declaration of spiritual bankruptcy. In other words, we are, we are poor in spirit, in which the penitents acknowledge the inadequacy of their own resources, and they trust only in God. Luther engaged with a man by the name of Erasmus, who defended the Catholic Church's pleas. And he was actually one of the Puritans within the Catholic Church who was trying to reform it, but he stuck with it. And the problem is that in that debate, Luther appears at times to argue that free will plays no role in salvation. The Catholic Church in Luther's day had definitely got off the, the path with penance and indulgences, today tempered somewhat, yet still emphasizing God's role more than do Protestants. Now, while all Protestants today, that we're sa uh, today agree that we're saved by grace through faith, some Protestants today believe that we cooperate through our faith with God's grace, including some evangelical churches, like those of the Wesleyan tradition. Methodist, Nazarene, and certainly the Wesleyan churches. So the question, and I think this is on your seat, that sometimes is polarized today, is whether God's grace is extended due to our faith, exercised by free will, or if God predestines or plants that faith in the elect alone. So, what does the word say? And some of you may recognize quickly where we're going. On the one hand, in Ephesians 1, Paul says, God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, 
that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Yeah, you recognize that we're back to the old sovereignty of God, election, predestination issue. However, interestingly, in 1 Timothy 2, the same Paul says, this is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And then, of course, remember your salvation verses, one of which is Romans 10, 9, where Paul states clearly, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And there are many others. However, Jesus says in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Then we were talking about James earlier today. James 1 says, excuse me, James 4 says, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your, your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Now, Luther was reacting to the works orientation and the abuses of the church. So he took a pretty hard stand on the involvement of the will in salvation. Luther gave a sermon on Titus 3. And I'm going to read the passage here, uh, starting at verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of our works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Okay, now, from this passage, Luther concludes, so he, Paul in Titus 3, discards all boasted free will, all human virtue, righteousness, and good works, He concludes that they are all nothing and are wholly perverted, however brilliant and worthy they may appear, and teaches that we must be saved solely by the grace of God, which is effective for all believers who desire it from a correct conception of their own ruin and nothingness. Now, I don't think any Protestant would have any problem with that statement other than the words discards all boasted free will. It's curious that Luther stated in the same paragraph that salvation is solely by God's grace, which is effective for all believers who desire it. Because it seems to me that desire, if it means anything, is an act of the free will. 
Maybe boasted free will is something else. So what does Luther mean by free will? One who thinks he understands what Luther means is John Piper. And I say think because that's what Piper says. Piper characterizes the issue, the debate between Luther and Erasmus as whether human beings are so sinful that God's sovereign grace must create and decisively fulfill every human inclination to believe and obey God. Okay, that may be a lot of words, but hopefully you get the, the message there. In another statement, Luther put it like this, I condemn and reject as nothing but error all doctrines that exalt our free will as being directly opposed to the mediation and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is Piper's response. Speaking of what Luther said, by free will, I think he means decisive self-determination in acts of faith and obedience. Now, understand, I'm not a smart guy like John Piper, but this admission is telling. If John Piper, extremely intelligent, who is as sure about his convictions as anyone, uses the term, I think, it tells us a couple of things. First, we should consider his interpretation, Piper's interpretation of Luther's interpretation of Paul. That's fine. But more importantly, we should not be too dogmatic about this subject because Piper is guessing. And perhaps it's an educated guess, but a guess nonetheless. In another place, Luther said, this is my absolute opinion, that he that will maintain that a man's free will is able to do or work anything in spiritual cases, be they never so small, denies Christ. This I have always maintained in my writings, especially in, the, in those against Erasmus. And Piper, deciphering those words, says... Luther doesn't mean that the will is inactive. He means that wherever it is active in faith and obedience, God is decisively active, creating and fulfilling the acts. Okay? Y'all got that? Now, one thing we can all agree on with Luther is that when it comes to salvation, we can't take any credit. Luther's reaction is perfectly understandable in light of the Catholic teaching and abuses of his time. That's clear. But what I would ask of Mr. Piper is, what is obedience? Is it not an act of the will? If God is decisively creating and fulfilling the act of obedience, then how is it obedience of that person? Do you guys follow that? Okay. It appears that Luther may have proceeded from there to say that we have no free will in salvation. God puts into the elect all that is needed to obtain salvation so that there's no hint of an action on our part in salvation, therefore, no credit due. To Luther, I would ask, and the thing that causes me pause, perhaps not you, is the plain meaning of certain verbs, like accept, receive, believe, submit, draw near, cleanse, purify, all of those verbs come before are related to the words, you will be saved. All of these are the imperatives 
of the salvation verses. Now, then there's the word that Luther himself used, that God's grace is effective for all believers, those who believe, who desire it. So, if these verbs mean anything, do they not call upon each person to make a decision? Isn't making a decision, by definition, an act of the will? Okay? Well, we as Protestants disagree among ourselves about the words used to describe the decision or free will and salvation. Lutheran and Reformed Protestants tend to lean heavily on the sovereignty side and avoid any hint of decision and will. Arminians and Wesleyans are not shy about talking about the will. Uh, I put that up there, not because it fits in the message, but just so you see that, you know, there's a lot of different takes on the issue of free will. And if you put up something from C.S. Lewis, people think you, you know something. So, now, what all Protestants agree on is that if a person has a right relationship with God, forgiven and justified, it's not because of any personal merit on their own. So our main objection to Catholic theology is the implication, if not the straightforward claim, that merit or works other than those of Jesus come into play in the sinner's reconciliation and right standing before God. Protestants don't see how it is possible to give any glory to the sinner before or after salvation and at the same time honor Paul's words in Ephesians 2, by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. In short, Protestants don't see how it's possible to talk about good works playing any role in a reconciled relationship with God and at the same time acknowledge it as a sheer gift of God's grace. Protestants do not deny the value of good works, works of love, in a reconciled relationship with God, not at all. Again, good works are the result and the evidence of salvation. Luther heartily affirmed good works, not as a cause of reconciliation with God, but as its natural and inevitable result. Now, some try to reconcile Luther with other Protestants by declaring, grace is this sole efficient cause of salvation. Faith is the instrumental cause of salvation by grace through faith. Okay? But even the ability to, to exercise faith is a gift of God and therefore comes by grace. And that may be correct. It may be that there's no disagreement with Luther. It's just that communication in general is not an exact science. Now at the beginning, you'll say thankfully, I suggest that we look for the big rocks here. So, let me ask some questions. Is it possible that God puts a desire in us to seek after him? I think that's totally possible. Is it possible that we do have a will to exercise, but that it's not completely free in the sense that God acts upon our will, that he must first draw a person to salvation? That seems to be what Jesus said. And perhaps that's how it can be explained or understood with our finite minds. But I believe that we will never fully understand how this all works on this side of eternity. We can think in black and white logic to conclude that because God is sovereign, 
then the consequence would logically be that he does all the work for salvation. But what exactly that means is something that, frankly, I believe is beyond our comprehension. As to Luther and the Reformers, it's also possible that godly men in the midst of a confused and corrupted church could have overreacted in their godly attempts to right the ship. Depending on what exactly Luther was saying about free will, I think it's possible that he could have been on target or maybe he overstated the case. Luther is not scripture. Now, you may know, but for me, this is still what I call a mystery. So where does that leave us? Of what can we be sure? Okay, here's some big rocks. Clearly, Luther and the Reformers were godly men doing their best in very difficult circumstances under the threat of death often. They were attempting to come out of a culture that was overpowering and corrupted. In essence, they were pioneers leading us out of the wilderness of man's self-interest overgrown with the vines of tradition back to a true understanding of how God's grace relates to mankind and how he alone is worthy of all praise. They looked at scripture and saw the inconsistencies with the practices of the church. They were bold and courageous. courageous. And for this, we should honor them. However, of all people, the reformers would be the last to say that they were infallible. And overreaction is always a possible problem. These things were used by God to make clear that the creator, not the creature, deserves all credit, praise, and glory for the gift of salvation. That's God's grace alone, not our works that allow us to spend an eternity with him. If God's imperatives to us mean we must make a decision, that decision in no way pays the debt for our sins and we deserve no credit for a no-brainer. God is perfect justice, mercy, and grace, and only he can receive glory for that. That is the biggest rock. Now, what about all these difficult questions concerning exact means of salvation, free will, predestination, the sovereignty of God? Well, I would suggest that we not allow those questions to divide the body of Christ we can have an opinion, that's fine, but let's not be too dogmatic about these things. You know, people much smarter than me have different opinions about this. I'm reminded of the words of George Washington Carver, who once said, quote, When I was young, I said to God, God, tell me the mystery of the universe. But God answered, That knowledge is reserved for me alone. So I said, God, tell me the mystery of the peanut. Then God said, well, George, that's more nearly your size. Now, I believe we'll have an answer to these tough questions in eternity. In the meantime, would that we all have the humility of George Carver. Father, we give all praise and glory to you. We recognize, Lord, that there are many difficult things. And, Lord, it is important that we think about these things, that we talk about them, and we try to sharpen each other's swords. But, Lord, let us focus on the important things. Let us help others understand 
that it's because of your grace and your grace alone that we have the opportunity to spend eternity with you. Father, I've admitted that there are things that confuse me here, and I pray, Lord, that you would not allow that confusion to distract me from what's most important to you. Father, we pray that you would help us to apply these things as we talk to others and to speak the truth in love. We ask all these things in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen.